Here's the first question we're going to start off with tonight, just to get us in our mode of thinking and talking. Why would Jesus speak in parables? Some of us in the church have taken it for granted that Jesus used parables. But what I want to start is assume, as we always do, that the, one of the reasons we learn the topics we do is so that people, when they ask us these questions, we have some valid responses to give back to them, and we don't look like idiots. So here's the question. Why did Jesus speak in parables? And before I give you some of my answers, I'd like to hear what you think. If someone came up to you and said, well, let me rephrase the question. Let me put it the way a skeptic would ask it. If Jesus wanted to be so clear about his words, why did he speak in parables? Or as somebody else might say, there's actually a Bible verse that we're going to look at tonight where the disciples say to him, Lord, why are you speaking in parables? And he says, because I don't really want everyone to know everything I'm saying. Wait a minute. If the saving message of Christ is, needs to be preached to everybody, why obscure it in a parable? So a preliminary question that most people don't even ask when they're studying the parables is why even use this device? Philip? Potentially, like some of the truths of God we're not able to understand. It's probably like it's a story. It's something that maybe we can understand the basic concept of it. Not okay. So you think that it can actually illuminate and reveal, not just obscure. Okay. Let me give you some ideas of why I think we're going to study the parables. You guys know that before we begin any series, we always justify why we're going to spend God's time studying something. There better be a good reason, otherwise we could do something better with our time. Here's what we're going to be studying. Why even look at the parables? First, the clear answer, Jesus taught using parables. If he used them, there might be a reason to look into them. I mean, one, he used them. In fact, most of his teaching, maybe about two-thirds of his teaching, came in the form of parables. So we'd be skipping a large part if we didn't study them. Second, kind of talking and starting to angle where Philip was going, I believe, and others believe, parables contain an eternal truth, but it's encapsulated in a story which we can easily relate with. Think of it as a metaphor. Parables are truth illustrated. Sometimes it's hard to understand the truths, or a better way to put it is sometimes we don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear what the statement would be, so Jesus says, rather than me just telling you how it is, I'm going to show you how it works. Parables are also not directed at you. They're about some theoretical person, so it's easier for the audience to hear them. All right? And I think this is a very powerful mechanism. The reason we're going to be using them is because it works with other people. The use of parables and metaphors is a powerful device. It impacts our long-term memory. People can remember stories longer than they can just remember straight rules. When I was in law school, we studied this concept. You could just hand me 30 rules and say, memorize these. But if I remember the case in which they came out of and the story of how those rules developed, it was so much easier to remember them because stories stick in our mind. Jesus himself is a master storyteller and a master disciple maker. If he used parables, then maybe we can use them. And again, his own words are superior to ours. The parables are rich with many layers of meaning. That's where we're going to shake it up. So let me summarize it like this. When we witness to other people, when we talk to other people, when we need to explain a difficult truth, sometimes we're asking or we're being asked the exact same question that Jesus was asked. And his response came in a parable. I'd like our series to do two things. One, learn how to respond 
with parables and metaphors, maybe the very same ones that Jesus used, because his words are superior to ours. The second thing is that last one. There are a lot of rich things that we just miss in the parables that I want to point out, because they're so instructive in our own life, not just when we're responding to other people. Now let's go back to the question why Jesus used parables. Some of them are because it was easier to tell someone a parable than to answer them directly because he knew it would be easier for them to handle. Some people speculate that Jesus used parables because there were people watching him, hoping to trip him up, and by using parables and stories, he was not actually directly saying anything. The interpretation of the parable was left open to people. There's one that's always troubled me, and that is, why would you obscure the truth? And we're going to look at that passage tonight. But Jesus seems to say, here's the hint, Jesus seems to say, there are some people that are only curious about Christianity, and they like to hear good stories. There are other people who want to seek out the truth and know the meaning of the parable. I want to encourage people to dig deeper and seek out the truth, and to those people it will be revealed what I'm talking about. All right, enough of me. Let's go to some scripture. If you have a Bible, open up to Matthew. If not, it's on the screen right here in front of you. We're going to start with a parable that most of us are familiar with. It's the parable of the sower. Some people call it the parable of the seeds. Okay? Other people call it the parable of the soils. Because there's three things in this parable. There's a sower, there's different kinds of soils, and then there's the seeds that are being thrown. Okay? And you'll see why I called it the parable of the seeds in a moment. Let me read you the first part. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it, was, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. He who has ears, let him hear. Imagine the context we're in. People are coming to Jesus because they want to hear him speak. They want to hear him teach. There's so many of them excited by what he has to say that he actually gets into a boat and kind of floats out a little bit just off the shore and says, now let me tell you a story. That's fair for us to ask. If you had come all this way, you're waiting to hear something from this rabbi who everybody is talking about, who has some sort of truth or some sort of story that everybody wants to hear, and you think, what does he have to say for us today? And you all stand there and you listen, and he tells this parable. It's probably fair to ask, like, what does this mean? Just give it to me straight. What's all this seed and sower and soil stuff? Why are you telling me this? Why don't you just say, look, some of you are like this soil, or some of you are like this. He just tells this parable. And then he looks at everybody and goes, thank you for coming. And everybody just kind of goes, and then just kind of like walk away like they've just heard this thing. Now, I'm sure that as most people do, some of them were walking around going, I know what that means, and they were making up something probably totally wrong. And other people started disagreeing, and immediately the first denominations were born right there, you know, (laughs) as they were fighting amongst themselves over what it meant, right? we don't really know. 
That's why I asked the question again, why did Jesus speak in parables? His closing line is, he who has ears, let him hear. What's he talking about? Now the disciples come to him and they ask him specifically what he's saying. Disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Does that trouble you? It's almost like he's saying, hey, look, I mean, we already know the, the road to, to the kingdom, the road through the gate is very narrow. Like Jesus is making it narrower. No, he's like putting bushes in front of it and hiding it, you know? Is that what he's doing? Because that's what some people will say he's doing. What's your answer? This is something that troubles some people, some skeptics, and you need to know that it's here and you need to have an answer for it. I think the best compelling one I've read so far in researching this is that the Lord was saying, look, there are some people who just out of curiosity want to know things, but they don't care. The people who care to know what these things mean are going to follow me everywhere to get the answers. They're not just going to show up, hear a story, and think, wow, that was great for my life, even if he had spoken it plainly. He's looking for people who are going to lay down everything they've got and follow him to figure out what does this mean. So he does go on to explain it to the disciples. And just so that we're clear, here's the explanation. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is the seed sown among the, along the path. The one who received the seed that fell on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since he has no root, he lasts only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, he quickly falls away. The one who received the seed that fell thorns is the man who hears the word, but worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. But the one who has received the seed that fell in the good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Jesus makes it clear in this parable, and he gives us, this is, like the, this is like the setup for all the parables. Here's a parable, and here's what it means. And here's why I speak in parables. After this, most of the parables that we go through don't have this clear of an explanation. So this is interesting to see how the Lord explained his own parable and how it's recorded. So what does the parable mean to us? We see that Jesus speaking is talking about the seed there's a sower and there's the soils. He explains the soils. Who's the sower in the parable? Whoever preaches the gospel could be an explanation of the sower. Who else might be the sower? Jesus himself. In most of Jesus' parables, you're going to see that he's going to be a host, a master. He's going to be a shepherd. He's going to be many things in these parables. Here, He's a sower. But he is also talking about people who sow the seed. Okay? So now that we know that Jesus speaks in parables, let's break it down. Jesus is most likely the person he's speaking about as the sower. So are also the other people who sow for Jesus. The seed. What's the seed? He already tells us what it is. What's the seed? It's the word of the kingdom. It's the word that's being given. And here you see the sower throwing the seed into four separate types of soil. On some soil, he says, it lands 
and the birds come and snatch it away. And he's saying, that's Satan. They don't even get a chance. It's been snatched away from them. Their soil, the condition of their heart is so hard, it doesn't even go in. It just lays on the surface, waiting for someone to snatch it away. So the first person, it doesn't even go in. Next are the ones that go in, but it doesn't come up. Those are the ones, he said, that fell on rocky places. And they have very shallow roots, so at least they go in, but nothing's coming up. No roots. It lasts for only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, they quickly fall away. Third soil is the one where it falls among the thorns. Here it goes in, and it even comes up, but it bears no fruit. Because it's growing among the weeds, where the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of life, choke it out. And the key word there is, it's unfruitful. Notice that what Jesus is concerned about are ones where the seed goes in, it comes up, and it bears fruit. Because he always ends with, he produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown, and he criticizes the ones that come up and get choked out. Why? Because they're unfruitful. So he's talking to us today, not just to the people that were sitting on the shore. He's saying to us, hey, when people sow my word, it's going to fall into four different types of places. Places where it just doesn't even go in at all. Might as well just have not done it. Places where it's so shallow and it's so tough, it's not going to make it. It's never going to come up. Then other places where they want it to go in. They're emotional about it. They're excited. The first plants start to come up, but they're completely unfruitful because of all these worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And that's the one that starts to worry me because I think maybe that's me. What if I'm one of those people who there's enough root for me to be something growing out of the ground, but life is distracting me from being fruitful? Maybe I'm not doing anything that's worth it in God's calculus and I'm going to be deemed unfruitful because the one that he wants to see is the one who multiplies what the sower has given in that one seed and produces that 160 or 30 times what was sown. And notice Jesus in both times uses different numbers, clearly indicating to us that Different people are going to bear different fruit. I was reading this week about some missionaries who just left their jobs here in America. They had regular, decent jobs and decided to go to Asia to start fighting the sex trafficking. Just dropped their jobs. One of them was at Harvard, had been at Harvard Law School, was making a lot of money as an attorney, just said, you know what, I'm done with it, and went and now lives in Thailand. I started like analyzing my own life, thinking... Am I one of those people that's showing no fruit or very little fruit? I mean, look at this person. That's what the parable is all about. But we said we're going to take one step further. Here's the question that I think is really interesting about this parable. If Jesus is really the sower, if Jesus is a smart farmer, why is he throwing seed on the rocky ground? 
Why is he throwing seed on the road? Why is he throwing seed in the places where he knows it's not going to go in? And this is the part of the parable that I feel like nobody ever looks at. Sure, we know this parable, at least most of us have probably heard it. It's probably been drilled into us in some Sunday sermon where you go like, there's different soils. Make sure your heart is the right way so that the seed will take root so you can produce fruit for the Lord. Good. Good. That's where most people leave it. Now tell me, why is Jesus, who knows everything, throwing seed onto the road? I mean, let's ask the question, does he not know how to farm? If you have good seed, how do you farm? How do people farm even back in the first century? How do you do it? Huh? Till the ground. ground. Which ground? You till the road? You're not going to till the road. You know, the Romans built that, man. They'll chop you up, right? (laughs) You till the ground, right? Which ground? You till the good ground. Like, you wouldn't even have all this stuff up here. You would just go straight down to the good soil. Go, I'm a farmer. I have good soil. Now let's till that ground. And then, as the little ox is moving and the thing is grooving, whatever, you know, you're going behind it, putting down seed into the ground. That's how you farm. That's how you sow seed. So what is he talking about? Why would anyone do this? Yeah. We're teaching all of them, regardless of whether they'll get it or not. So it's basically covering your own butt. Saying, well, I gave everybody a fair chance. At least it makes sense to me. It's like, hey, well, look, you know, I gave them a seed. It's right. their fault now. You, know? you may be the first person that's ever told God that he had to cover his butt. That's pretty good. You know, <laughs> Go down in like church history is like, like the, the, he wrote a memo to cover himself so to make sure that nobody could accuse him later of being unjust. Look, this is the beauty of this parable that I think is so often missed. Think of Jesus walking by the side of the road with a huge sack of seeds next to him. And he's just flinging it everywhere. He's just throwing it almost carelessly. Not like the careful farmer would do where he walks behind the tilling and plants the seed to make sure he doesn't waste it. Jesus doesn't look and say, who among you has good soil that I'm going to give my word to? That I'm going to speak forth the saving words or tell the teachings or whatever you want to look at the seed in this parable. And we have to be careful because parables are not straight doctrine. We can extrapolate the, the, the central meaning of the parable, but if you have a doctrine that comes strictly out of a parable, you might be a little bit shaky because it is a story. But I don't think it's too much of a stretch to look at God in this way and say, how great is our God that he knows that it's not going to go in and he still throws the seed everywhere. This is not a sower who's walking carefully and guarding his seed jealously. This is a sower who's probably not even going to qualify as a sower because he's just throwing it everywhere. That's why the seed lands on the road in bad ground in weed-choked ground, and even in good ground, because he's saying, I'm going to give this seed to everyone. And then we'll see how it comes out. Yeah. Like, why didn't he just tell the disciples since it's about selling and spreading the word? Like, what was the point for him to... Because all these parables are kind of like, he's rebuking the Pharisees. But sometimes he's rebuking people. And I think that when you... Let, let me give you my, a, a good speculation. I think it's based on some background, but 
to answer your question, thousands of people come to see Jesus speak. Maybe it's hundreds, I don't know. So many that he feels like he can't just stand on the shoreline and speak to them, so he gets into a boat and he starts to teach. I think what he's really saying, not to create a pun here, is he's trying to weed them out. He's trying to tell them, you all are here to hear me speak and, and, and somehow amaze you or entertain you. I'm going to give you the seed right now. I'm going to give you my word, and you're not going to understand it. Some of it's, and even if you followed me, or even if I told you everything I knew about the kingdom, it's going to fall into these different categories. What he's really saying is, you people who are listening, some of you, no matter what, it's not going to go in. Some of you are going to get very excited today, and it's, you're going to think that everything's okay, but it's going to produce no fruit because it's that emotional joy that comes for a short time. I think that's why he does that. You're going to see that a lot of times when Jesus is asked the question, he begins with a parable. Because I think, to finish the, the answer, that's easier for people to hear than for all these people to stand there and Jesus to say, okay, let me just tell you that a fourth of you, never going to understand what I'm saying, it's never going to make sense, and you're never going to believe it. Another fourth of you, you guys, even if you, if you thought it might make sense, it's just not going to take root. The others of you, I know you think you're there, but you're not. I mean, that's just, that's too hard for people to hear. But it still leaves that question open of, did they get it at all if he told the parable? Because even the disciples had to come up and go, could you explain that? And I think he was saying, that's who I want to explain to. I want the people who are going to really follow me and be really interested to know what I'm saying. Now, clearly, some of the other parables are a little bit easier to understand. Okay, this one's, I mean, if you just stopped in the previous slide where he just talks about the, the seeds and everything, goes, all right, that's it, I'm done, you'd probably be left hanging without much. Yeah? I'm just, I'm just trying to think, why would he tell the common people that are already broken and are looking for hope that you guys suck? But you're assuming that everybody who's standing on that shoreline is broken. No, I'm not assuming that. I'm just because saying. I think if you looked at the people in this room, what if we stood on the shoreline? Maybe none of us would count ourselves as wealthy. But I would say that there's some of us in this room, including me, who are trapped into the deceitfulness and the worries of life that distract us from the things that really matter. I'll give you a parallel. The worries of life. Do you remember later in the Gospels, a man up to him and says, I want to follow you. And he says, but first I have to go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury themselves. Come and follow me now. There's no indication that that guy was wealthy. What's, what's Jesus saying? Like, you know, and we're going to talk about that example later. I mean, in our, just to kind of bring up, those are some of the hard things that parables bring up. And a lot of people, when they hear, like, we're going to talk about the parables, they're like, oh, this should be just fun. You know, like, these parables are hard to deal with. That one, that worries of life, isn't only just for wealthy people. I think it's for people like that guy who was thinking, hey, as soon as I'm done with my dad, I'll come follow you. He's like, come now or don't come at all. So... That's why I'm saying maybe none of us are wealthy in here, but whatever it is that we've put as our goals in life that we're chasing may be things that are preventing us from being fruitful. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in this room has no, bears no fruit and it will die away, but it's a warning to us. Kelly? It also says, it says the deceitfulness of wealth, but who think that if they're wealthy, everything will be better in their lives. So you may not even be talking to those who just want to be wealthy. Sure. Pursuing wealth in their lives. Like right. And that's an excellent point because... Timothy says, First Timothy, it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money. It's people who pursue wealth that find themselves in snares and traps, not necessarily wealth itself. In fact, First Timothy says, charge those who are wealthy to be wealthy in good deeds. So he's not saying, like, charge those who are wealthy to ditch their dough. 
He's saying, charge those who are wealthy to do good things with what they have. But just three paragraphs before, or four or five verses, he's saying, but don't pursue money because you'll fall into a trap and a snare for doing so. That's an excellent point because, again, we don't know who the audience is. And I also believe that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, there were a lot more mixtures of people. So I think even some Pharisee scribes, wealthy people were kind of there to hear who is this guy and hear what he's saying. All right, if time permits, I want to go through one more. This is the workers in the vineyard. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing and doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever's right. So they went. He went out again in the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. Notice some things about this parable. There are workers that are each going to work for a denarius that start off at the beginning of the day. Then he finds more workers in the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour. Even at the eleventh hour, he's going into the marketplace. This is a busy landowner. He is constantly looking for more workers for his vineyard. And he finds these guys just standing around. I mean, these guys were literally day laborers, like the day laborers we have today. They're standing around in a corner somewhere waiting for someone to hire them. The eleventh hour, out of 12 that they usually worked, there's still some people standing around. He's saying, what are you doing here? Why are you doing nothing? They said, well, nobody's given us anything to do. If you think about it, it means that we're not going to eat tonight, probably. We don't have any money. We're not going to feed our families. And he says, you know what? Get out there and do some work right now, and I'll pay you to do it. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. That was the amount he promised the people who started that day. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And can you imagine that? They're standing around thinking, well, if those guys got a denarius, he must be giving out a lot of money today. Because they only worked for an hour. And they got what he promised us, so we must be getting like five. But they each also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Here is what I mean by some parables can be used to instruct and teach in our own ministries, in our own time with other people. I know people who say to me, it is so unfair that you could serve God your whole life and be a Christian your whole life and then some guy who happens to be crucified next to Christ on the cross turns to him and says, hey, I believe in you. And Jesus replies, today you're going to be with me in paradise. There are people who are going to stand around and say, that's not fair. There are other people who are going to say this to you. Hey, listen, I do not believe in a God who could pardon a killer at the last moments of his life just because at the last moments he decided, I want to believe in Jesus. Or I know people who've been good their whole life 
And while everybody else is partying and having a good time and smoking, having sex, drinking, just living their life the way they want, and then sometime when they're like 65, they go, okay, <laughs> I believe in you now, Jesus. And Jesus says, great. You see, if someone had come to Jesus and said, but I don't think this is fair. I don't think this is just. I don't really understand how you can let that thief in at the last moment. I don't understand how the murderer gets in. I don't understand how the child molester gets to suddenly change their life after they've hurt everybody and get into the kingdom. I don't understand why you think everyone's equal. Why I could serve you my whole life and be standing in line behind some guy who basically got there at the last minute. Is that justice? Is that fair, Lord? Or as a skeptic would ask you, they'd say, that's not a just God. This guy doesn't know justice. What's your answer going to be? Because I think the reason Jesus told this parable is because that somebody was asking him this question. And instead of saying, hey, it's fair for me to do whatever I want, which somebody would have said, huh? That doesn't answer the question just because what? I mean, even if I assume you're God, you can just do whatever you want. That's fair. But that's what Jesus is going to say in a minute in this parable. So instead, he tells a story. Now think about the people listening to the story. Think about you. What if you were this person? Forget one day and an hour. What if you're at your job? And someone says, hey, uh, I'm going to pay you $100 a day every day for this whole year. And you work all year long and then somebody shows up like in December. But at the end of the year, they get the same money that you got for the whole year. All of us would be saying, that's not fair. Because, you know, in America, we know what's fair. If you're standing in line and somebody tries to cut, like, you know, the whole line is glaring. We have that glare, you know, like we all start looking at each other knowingly. Like you're standing in there and somebody's cutting and like everybody starts doing this, looking at each other like, you know. Like we all know there's a gross, gross injustice going on that somebody is cutting in line we can feel it it's tangible i mean you could almost touch that kind of unfairness so we know what's fair and we know that this is not fair even in the first century when jesus is telling this story people are standing there and he's setting them up because they're saying yeah that's not fair here's the punchline to the parable but he answered one of them one of them being the people that are grumbling. He answered one of them. Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. Apparently, if you tell a man to work in a vineyard for 12 hours in the hot sun, a denarius is a good amount of money. Because nobody grumbled when he said, hey, I'll take the denarius. Oh yeah, that's great. I'll work for a denarius. For one day's work, I'm there. It's only when they found out that other people worked less for a denarius that they began to reevaluate their self-worth in their own mind. They began to reevaluate their place in the kingdom. Hey, I thought a denarius was fair, but if that 11th hour worker gets a denarius, then I should get like at least 11 or 12 because I worked 12 hours. He worked one. But Jesus is saying to him, hey, I'm not being unfair to you. Didn't I give you what you deserved? What business is it of yours if I want to give to those who don't deserve the same thing that I gave to you? 
He says, I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? You talked about being kind of confrontational and a rebuke. This is a rebuke to all of us who feel that these circumstances are unfair. Because what Jesus is really saying in a parable like this is, let me remind you, none of you deserve to work in my vineyard because you were standing in a marketplace and nobody cared to hire you. I decided to hire you. And I gave you what was a joyous amount in your mind, a denarius. Why do you care, since you don't deserve it, you're standing around with no job, that I give it to other people who don't deserve it? Or are you envious because I am generous? When people ask me about how could God do this and let someone in at the last minute, I think, hey, Jesus already answered this question. It's right here. What's your problem, friend? Are you envious of the Lord because he is more generous than you? Do you have a problem with someone who gives everybody who doesn't deserve it the same amount? Because none of us deserve it. And that's what Jesus is really saying in this parable. None of us deserve salvation. Some of us have been working for the kingdom our whole lives, but we're not earning salvation. Remember, Jesus chose us. We're sitting around with nobody to save us, nobody to give us a place in the kingdom, nobody to give us any work in the vineyard. We're just standing around the marketplace like, and he chose us and said, come work for me. I'm going to give you the denarius, but notice that Jesus' denarius, his salvation to the worker, is not dependent on how hard we work. And even when we grumble and think, but I've been serving you my whole life, Lord, who's this guy? He's saying, hey, you didn't deserve it. He didn't deserve it. Why do you care that I'm generous to give it to everyone? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. I've tried to tell someone how much we all don't deserve it. How much the child molester doesn't deserve it, and I don't deserve it. People are like, yeah, yeah, but uh." I've also tried just reading this parable. It's remarkable how when we use the words of the Lord himself, they work better than ours. And I mean that sarcastically about the remarkable part, because we should expect them to. They've been given to us by the Holy Spirit. They have power on their own. They're God's own words breathed into the people who wrote the scriptures. And the device that Jesus uses of setting up the parable shows us the truth, an eternal truth illustrated. Now, some people could just read this and go, I think the Lord's nuts. But it still comes back to that last line. Do you care that he's generous? Do you care that he gives more than he should? Why should you care that he gives more than he should? He's given you what he said he would. He's keeping his word to you. Why do you care He's also keeping his word to others. Yeah. With that last statement, it almost basically says, well, yes, I am being unfair. But, like, who cares? Like, I'm being unfair in a good way. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly because Romans, remember, says that all fall short, right? We, in other words, translate that to say we all don't deserve it. So if you wanted what was fair, I would just step out. Hey, I told you the standard. You guys screwed it up. 
You know, sin, death. It's the standard, right? So if you want absolute fairness, be careful what you ask me, says the Lord. Because if I were to be absolutely fair the way humans understand fairness, it's like we set the rules at the beginning of the game, we said go, and within a second you're already out. Okay, that's the end of the I'm done, you know? So he overcomes what we think of as fair by saying, I'm going to actually go beyond that and offer my grace and salvation despite the fact that none of you deserve it. Yes, if you think it's unfair to give it to one, the good news is I'm giving it to everybody. So I'm being equally unfair to all of you by tweaking the rules that I originally set up. Um, that's the doctrine that I would say of being careful not to extrapolate too much from the parable because I thought about this when I was reading the parable, the very point about this equality. Jesus' central point is I'm going to give salvation to everyone who doesn't deserve it, which is everybody who wants it, okay? And that's where we have to leave the parable, like at its central point. Um, There are going to be other parables that we may extrapolate from, but because Jesus' direct teaching, not parable teaching, tells us that there are rewards in heaven and he explains almost exactly how to get them at times. That's why we know that doctrine is not contradicted by this, but that that meaning can't be extrapolated from the parable. You, you uh, learned to it, this is a rebuke to the Pharisees. The Pharisees, I think, were, they've worked all their lives doing these like cleansing rituals and all these things, and they're like, Jesus, why are you talking to the retards and the women and the broken and the, and the abused and whatever. Like, we are the people of God. Like, we've worked for God. We deserve more. And then Jesus is like, the last, these people that you're crapping on. Yeah. And those Pharisees, by the way, still exist today, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. we can be those Pharisees yeah. sometimes, but those of us who, when we become Christians, build a wall around us and immediately block out all non-Christian activity or non-Christian friends, non-Christian contact. I mean, you know, we become those people that are living that life where we're like, Lord, we're serving you every day. And he's saying, like, I asked you to go into the world and go to the world, and you guys are, like, living in the Christian club, you know? So, yeah, it's probably directly to the Pharisees back then as context from the scriptures. And I think it even applies to us today in that same exact context. The church. Yeah. The people in the church. Yeah. I mean, I've said this. This is my mantra that I'm trying to repeat. Somebody will write a book on it someday. But Christians are called to be cross-cultural, and yet... The problem in the church is we are always subcultural. We build our own subculture with our own language, our own lingo, our own clubbiness. And when we go out to the rest of the world, they look at us like, you guys are totally weird. You know? And actually, the worst thing is we think they're weird. I mean, we look at them as like with a big badge of pride, like we are Christians and those guys are the heathens. It's like, you got to love those people, otherwise they're never going to hear the truth. Okay, there are dozens of parables. I don't know how many we're going to go through, but I'm trying to pick out the ones that have strong impacts, not only because we may have missed a key meaning, like in the parable of the sower or the seeds. I love just watching the seeds in my mind just being thrown all over the place. We, as Christians, as sowers, need to be that careless with the way that we sow the seed. Not just worrying about, well, if they're going to listen, are they going to listen to me? And what if they don't believe me? Like, Jesus is like, I don't care. Give the world all the chance it needs. Even if you know, even if you're the Lord and you know it's not going to work, do it anyway. Most of us are so reserved in our efforts to try to reach out to others and tell them about the gospel. Jesus is like, throw it out there. I think we have to be wise, but I think you also know that most of us err on the side of just doing nothing. So I don't want to be crazy, 
But the honest truth is most of us are sitting on the sidelines. We're not doing anything. In this parable, you're going to encounter so many people who think that the whole salvation thing of Jesus makes no sense. I love his words in this. This is probably one of my favorite parables. It's just so stinging how he says, are you envious because I'm generous? I mean, who's been unfair to you, friend? I gave you what you asked for. Why do you care that I give it to somebody else? Next week, we'll kind of keep going with a few more, hopefully to spur some thought about things you've never seen in the parables. And also so that when someone asks you one of those questions, you could say, hey, let me read you a story. And sometimes that might be the best way that you can witness to somebody go, do you want to see how Jesus answered this question? Let me just read you his words. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we have just the privilege of, of seeing your word in front of us, that we can marvel at what's inside. Lord, your wisdom is so compelling, and we are just in awe that you are a Lord who shares this wisdom in so many ways. Lord, I pray tonight that this parable, both these parables, would remain in our minds. You taught in parables so that we could keep them in our mind and use their lessons. So, Lord, do that not just in ancient days, but do this with us tonight. Let us go home and dwell more on the hidden meanings in these parables and wonder at the ways that you spoke. Thank you for the metaphors that you give us in our everyday life to explain truths that are eternal, some of which we might not even understand. And Lord, thank you for bringing us here and helping us to meet in this place. Let us worship you right now, Lord, and just offer up praise to you. Lord Jesus, thank you for the denarius that you give and offer to each one of us for the taking. Pray these things in your name. Amen.